0: this washington post live podcast is sponsored by the task force on higher education and opportunity a partnership aimed at providing greater opportunity to students and their communities while also reimagining higher education's contribution to society you're listening to a podcast from washington post live bringing the
1: post's newsroom to life on stage leslie fenwick dean emeritus of the howard university school of education And Andre Dua, senior partner at McKinsey & Company, joined The Post to talk about the evolving role of higher education. Let's listen.
2: Hi, I'm Eugene Scott, a political reporter for The Fix at The Washington Post. And today we're going to explore how the role of higher education is being re-examined across the country, including how it needs to evolve to meet a changing job market and how a growing inequality has been exacerbated by the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm thrilled to begin today's program with Leslie Fenwick, the Dean Emeritus of Howard University School of Education. Welcome Dean Fenwick. Thank you. You have been a teacher, a a scholar, a Dean at a university, as well as being someone Joe Biden was seriously considering as his education secretary. What do you think his top education priority should be?
3: Well, Eugene, it's a privilege uh, to be here with you this afternoon. And certainly the top priority has to be um, embracing a new um, and more diverse student population, both in K-12 higher ed and the workforce. I mean, we've seen some trends beginning in 2015 in public education, K-12 education that resonates with higher education. So beginning in 2015, For the first time in the history of American public education, uh, the student population became majority student of color and the majority of those students were from families that are experiencing poverty. We see some of this mirroring uh, into the higher education setting, particularly in public universities. So um, for the first time in 2017-18, the majority of public school, public colleges and university students um, were non-white. That's a first time uh, in American history. And that um, trajectory continued into 2018-19, that academic year, where when we look at public colleges and universities, the majority of students in 12 states, uh, Puerto Rico and the District of Columbia, were non-white students. And so I reference this because we have a new generation of young people um, that have to have opportunity in uh, education, both K-12 and higher ed, in order to be um, excellent contributors to the workforce, the labor force, and civic life.
2: You know, when I think about diversity in higher education, one of the top topics I think about uh, is college affordability and we know that student debt, forgiveness, and tuition-free college have been part of Joe Biden's education agenda. The pandemic has put the global economy into a year-long tailspin, as you know, and we may only be just now starting to recover. Do you think we can afford to cancel college debt right now?
3: I think we have to do everything we can to kind of restructure our fundamental assumptions about how students pay for college Uh, undergraduate college and even graduate and professional school. So right now, the majority of young people pay for um, college and university life, uh, graduate school, professional school, through student loans. And I think we're at a tipping point where we need to reconsider some of these fundamental assumptions, not only about how we fund K-12 education, but how we expect young people to fund higher education. So our old notions of increasing budgets, increasing uh, Pell Grant, you know, maybe doubling the Pell Grant or increasing budgets um, that states use to support public uh, colleges and universities really need some retinkering. These were old assumptions of just expanding a pot of money. Um, maybe now we can look at uh, reducing Um, costs associated with uh, attending college in new and kind of revolutionary ways.
2: When a lawmaker who supports canceling college debt tweets something supporting that idea, uh, usually in the replies you see someone saying, what about those of us who already paid off our debt? And what's your response to that? There's so many people who got second jobs, who stayed in college longer than they were expecting to, uh, just to make sure that they could uh, finish their programs debt-free or at least pay off the debt years later. What what would you say to those individuals uh, who wonder why canceling college debt is beneficial to them? I
3: think that uh, civic life and public policy are always forward-looking. Always forward looking. So, the more we can do as a society to uh, increase the diversity of students who have college degrees, who are equipped to go into the workforce with certificates and licensure and training, um, the better our society is as a whole. So, I would say that the notion of civic life, the notion of public policy, is to be forward looking um, about, you know, kind of the foundational aspects of life. Um, This is not about the past. This is about crafting a new future. And there's certainly a new uh, generation, a more diverse group of students who will be participating in a global workforce whom we need to edify, um, whom we need to reduce the friction um, between them getting uh, trained, educated, um, and participating in the workforce.
2: I certainly understand that, but would you say that there's equity in that? I know equity has been a big part of uh, what Biden wants to push forward. Is is there equity in some students having college debt canceled and others not?
3: I think there is equity in that. Um, You know, equality and equity are two different propositions. Equity is providing individuals with the resources and experiences that assist them with being successful in uh, the workforce. And so I think that um, we're looking now. We're at the shifting point. One of the things that the pandemic has done is it's told us that we can reconfigure, we can reassess these foundational assumptions that we have about how we're operating, how we're operating economically, who we're serving in higher ed, who we're serving in K-12, uh, foundational assumptions about who we will invest in. Are we going to invest in a more diverse, um, educated citizenry, a more diverse um, workforce? And how will we do that? We'll only do that by looking forward, by kind of doing equity audits of what this new population of young people need to be successful um, in terms of education achievement, education outcomes, participation in in the workforce. And we want this new generation Um, to be successful not only at the lower rungs of the labor force, but in senior management and leadership positions. And so the equity equation, just like public policy and civic life, require and demand that we be forward-looking.
2: Speaking of being forward-looking, we know that under the president's current plan, uh, at least some of the $1.6 trillion uh, in student debt would be eliminated for 44 million affected Americans. Uh, Is that the proper balance of reducing debt? And and who still could be obligated?
3: Well, I don't know who could still be obligated. Um, uh, Again, I think any any moves that we make to reduce debt, to reduce the cost of tuition, the cost of seeking higher education is going to better serve this new student population. As I mentioned um, at the top of the show, um, you know, we have in our public K12 schools, the majority of students are students of color and students who are from families experiencing poverty. And now we see, as of 2017, that the majority of students who are in uh, public colleges and universities, a significant sector of the universe, the, the universe of colleges and universities, those students too, are students of color. Primarily, first generation college attendees, primarily from families and communities that are experiencing poverty, and also a larger share of women. So, um, you know, I think uh, again, we have to do kind of an equity audit um, in terms of how we're going to redefine assumptions and structures and mechanisms so they're aligned with this new workforce. And this new workforce needs additional resources to get to the places that we need them to get to.
2: Donald Trump's education secretary, Betsy DeVos, said the concept of free college uh, is a socialist takeover of higher education. I assume you disagree with her, but I want to hear why.
3: You know, um, was the GI Bill a socialist overtake of higher education, we've had throughout American history, not only in higher education, but in society general. generally, a commitment to, um, I think, the American ideal and intention of opening doors and leveling playing fields. You know, if we look 20 years ago, 25 years ago, the representation of women in higher education wasn't what it is today. Today, um, women in undergraduate and graduate and professional schools predominate. In many instances, they are in populations larger than male students, and this holds for every race and ethnic group, uh, whether we're talking about whites, blacks, uh, Latinx, Asian, and other groups. Um, Women are the predominant um, student in undergraduate school and graduate and professional school. I think we again. I say we have to look at these foundational assumptions that are guiding um, who we want to serve um, and who we actually are serving. Here we are with, uh, for the first time in American history, um, this new demographic um, that is deserving of an opportunity and whom we need as a country um, to continue to prosper. So. Um, I think any programs and policies that open doors, level playing fields, and reconfigure how we get resources to the propositions of K-12 education, higher education, um, and uh, reduce what I'll say is the kind of education friction, which is the time and cost of education, and reducing the likelihood of and unsuccessful employment experience will help this new uh, generation of prospective workers who are our future, whether we like it or not, they are our future.
2: Indeed, and as you know, we are in college acceptance season uh, in many parts of the country right now, and, and families are asking, what is the best way to finance an education? Uh, what What would you suggest to families trying to figure out how to afford college?
3: I think that, uh, you know, with these, as I said, with this uh, demographic shift, that more colleges and universities are re-examining um, how to attract and retain a more diverse student population. So we've seen um, directly after the pandemic, many colleges and universities stopped requiring college entrance exams for um, acceptance. We already had You know, at least 30 years of research that showed that um, for black and brown students, uh, standardized test scores, college admission scores, had less predictive value than high school GPA. So we're seeing institutions um, begin to massage their structures and their disposition to serve a new population. Um, uh, Certainly, uh, the Biden administration has. Um increase resources to families, um, not only just to help with general economic uh, wherewithal, but to also assist with um, increasing and sustaining uh, college attendance. And I think that those are the right moves. Um, and so my message to parents is, we have in this country um, Several types of institutions of higher education. The average cost, for instance, for an in-state public institution is about six thousand dollars. The average cost for a public institution out of state is about double that, uh, maybe even triple, around eighteen to twenty one thousand. And then for private institutions, there's a considerable jump to an average cost of about $34,000. So parents in the United States do have choices. In-state um, institutions recommend, uh, you know, rep- represent um, probably the most cost-effective alternative for parents and students to consider. And we also have you know, um, a significant number of first-generation college students are emancipated. They are uh, economically in, in every other way on their own. And so colleges and universities, as I said, are going to need to continue to look at these structures and their assumptions and their disposition to serve, the services that they're providing students um, are going to look different relative to this new generation and population of students.
2: I want to switch gears a bit and talk about this coronavirus pandemic that has really, uh, you know, turned higher education and K through 12 education on its head in many ways. And in one of those ways is is the digital divide. I'd love to hear what you think about the ways in which the pandemic has exposed the growing problem of a digital divide in the United States. This
3: is a serious issue as we well know. And it's also an issue where the federal government and industry can um, make a huge difference. So for students, whether they're K-12 or in higher ed, if they're from families where the family income is less than $30,000 annually, 30% of those um, students are have no broadband access. They have no internet access, no ability to um, log on, to participate in school, to complete homework. And in fact, we're beginning to Um, track. We have been tracking in various uh, school districts the number of students who are now unschooled. Not that they're just not attending a physical space called school, but they're not even logging on. And this is something we've got to correct. So when we talk about a learning lag, I'm deeply concerned about those students, particularly those who are in urban communities that don't have access to um, internet for Um, school participation, homework completion, and also remote rural communities that have similar problems. I was speaking to a dean colleague in Kansas, and she was noticing during the pandemic when her university was closed and offering virtual instruction, that on the occasion when she visited her campus, she noticed clusters of cars with um, adults and young children sitting in cars. And she thought this was interesting and went over to the cars and noticed in talking to the adults who were in the cars that they were with young children and trying to ride the university's um, internet access. And so, um, you know, parents are going to lengths to make sure that their children are, um, uh, you know, educated, in this virtual environment. And I think going forward, even as we get a better handle on the pandemic, we've already established that education um, is going to be transboundary. Um, you know, our advances in audio and video technology have made not only education a transboundary and dispersed experience or distributed experience. It's also making the workplace. So we see these parallels and this mirroring um, between education environments and actually workplace environments. And this generation is the most um, technology connected um, and uh, savvy. So making that transition hasn't been di- difficult for them because, you know, as the literature says, uh, they're digital natives. But we have to, again, um, use this as an opportunity for um, federal government, private industry and philanthropy to come together to craft new solutions, to reach a more diverse body of individuals. Our old assumptions about mm-hmm. um, you know, students of color or people of color being stuck on a lower rung Um, in the education pipeline or a lower rung, entry-level positions in the workforce, Um, restricting um, those populations, especially now, is not going to serve our productivity goals. So diversity and equity and inclusion are centerpieces to going forward, not only in higher ed, but also in terms of the larger workforce and meeting those productivity goals that we have.
2: Awesome. I have one more question for you, and it's related to the drop in enrollment that we've seen during the pandemic. Uh, Last year, college enrollment dropped by 20 percent compared to the previous year, uh, with much of that drop off coming from students from low-income neighborhoods. What are some of the most effective ways to address that?
3: Eugene, I think this is such an important question. So when we look at that data, there's There's some good news embedded in the data. I'll I'll talk about the bad news about the drop because even prior to the pandemic, um, we noticed a, a drop in higher education enrollment by about 5% and that's been exacerbated because families and individuals are at more economic risk risk as a result of the pandemic and job losses. But there's, there is some silver lining either around that cloud or embedded in that cloud. And here's that silver lining. Um, when we look at Black and Latinx um, high school dropout rates, they're at an all time low. So we have uh, Black students and Hispanic Latinx students um, finishing high school at rates that are comparable to white students. So dropout rates are at an all time low. And we also have um, black and Latinx 12th graders um, enrolling in college at higher rates, probably the highest rates in the last um, 10 years. So this is encouraging. We have more interest in college, more enrollment in college or desire to enroll in college, and fewer students, particularly black and brown students, dropping out of high school. Um, The declines that we're seeing, um, again, are coming primarily from, uh, we need to look at uh, white students, particularly white students who are from uh, rural areas and Um, from families that are experiencing poverty, that group of students is contributing to this um, loss. And I think we can um, recoup, Um, you know, in my experience as Dean, um, the majority, the overwhelming majority of my students did not drop out of school because of undergraduate college GPA. Um, Typically, what stood between them and the ability to continue was about $2,500. So many times we see students um, who are from families experiencing poverty, students who are first-generation college attendees, um, dropping out not because of academic ability and talent, but because there's a very small margin of resources financing that they need to remain in college. Um, So uh, again, resources are the determinative factor here in buoying a new generation of students to attend and graduate from college, um, to participate in um, upskilling through licensure and certification programs, and then to enter the workforce, not only at the lower rungs, but to be cultivated for senior management and leadership positions.
2: Dean Fenwick, thank you so much for taking time to join us here at Post Live. I have way more questions, but not enough time. And so hopefully we can talk to you again in the future.
3: Eugene, it's been a privilege. Thank you for canvassing this topic.
2: Sure, sure. And I will be back to continue the program in a moment.
0: The following segment was produced and paid for by a Washington Post Live event sponsor. The Washington Post newsroom was not involved in the production of this content. I'm Elise Labatt from American University. And today we're talking about how higher education can address some of the societal challenges that have been exacerbated by the COVID pandemic. Leaders from 38 organizations launched the task force on higher education and opportunity to act upon these challenges, provide greater opportunity to students and their communities and reimagine higher education's contribution to society. Today, I'm joined by two of the task force's founding members, president of Northern Virginia Community College, Dr. Ann Cress, and James Milligan, chancellor of the University of Texas System. Welcome. Thank you.
4: Thank you, good to be here. Chancellor
0: Milligan, let's start with you about the opportunity for higher education to address some of these societal challenges that have been exacerbated by the pandemic. And talk to us about what are some of the biggest challenges you're finding that are facing students and the the communities?
4: Thanks, sure. So um, for some time, we've known that the the best new jobs being created require education beyond high school. And educators and policymakers have been grappling and employers grappling with what the future of work means and what we need to do uh, to improve opportunity for our students and for adult workers. But COVID has taken this and compressed it. It has brought all kinds of challenges with unusually high uh, unemployment rates, not only for older workers who've lost their jobs uh, during the pandemic, but for young graduates of institutions. And so one of the things we needed to do was to step up in a much more urgent way, to find ways to intervene now uh, and to be able to reskill, upskill, connect Uh, our graduates and displaced workers with the opportunities in the workplace that we see developing.
0: Dr. Kress, let's build on that. COVID and the recession has accelerated these trends that already existed while also creating new challenges. Let's talk about why now is the time to act to reduce some of those challenges and gaps for students that are preparing for graduation and how the task force for higher education and opportunity plans to address new challenges like rising unemployment and and these new future of work trends.
1: Sure, absolutely. And I think that is really the power of the task force. You have institutions of every type, two-year institutions, liberal arts institutions, research institutions coming together to say that we do have a responsibility to our students and our graduates and soon-to-be graduates who are going out into this economy to find that success in a post-pandemic world. We know that the future of work has been accelerated and furthermore, we know that um, the The challenges that we have long faced, too long faced in terms of equity and opportunity have really been exacerbated and illuminated by the pandemic. So by coming together and really taking on that responsibility and saying we can do more, we can do more around coaching, we can do more around providing those skills. That's a change that we can make as higher education institutions at scale while still focusing locally on the communities that we serve best. Well,
0: Chancellor, it really seems like this could be potentially um, very impactful for the task force to work to set students up for success during those post-COVID recovery. Let's talk about some of your immediate goals and how they play into these larger efforts.
4: Well, so one of the things that I think that's unique about this group, as Anne uh, mentioned, is that it's all kinds of organizations. It's university systems, it's community colleges, it's Research One universities. AM's uh, always been in this space. The community colleges in this country have been much more nimble and responsive to changes in the workplace uh, than research universities have been. Um, What this task force uh, is is really um, encouraging is the sense that we all own this responsibility. This is an obligation for all of us to be engaged in how to be more responsive both for our our students who are graduating into a pandemic that's uh, unprecedented, for recent graduates uh, who are having more difficulty now, and particularly people of color who uh, are experiencing unemployment rates at about twice the level of other young graduates, and for displaced workers who need to get back into uh, the workplace, but probably not with only the same set of skills they had before. So this is uh, an effort across the board in higher education, community colleges, research universities and others, uh, to address in uh, a new way what the challenges are uh, of the economy that we're facing today.
0: Dr. Kress, we just have a moment left, but it really does seem like a real opportunity here to kind of reimagine how higher education can make
1: this contribution to society. Absolutely. There is this opportunity to help our graduates and soon-to-be graduates pivot to where opportunity still lies. For example, at NOVA, we're really focusing on the IT economy. Six of the top jobs in our region are in the information technology sector. Um, we know that opportunity is there. Just month on month, employment has increased between 6 and 12% in those fields. All of us are really rethinking how we can help our graduates find that opportunity out there and connect to it in meaningful ways.
0: Well, you know, it certainly seems as if COVID has added to the challenges facing um, recent and pending graduates, but also creates a lot of opportunities here to imagine the future of higher education. President of Northern Virginia Community College, Dr. Ann Cross, and uh, Chancellor of the University of Texas System, J.B. Milliken. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. We'll send it now back to the Washington Post. And now, back to
1: Washington Post Live.
2: Welcome back. I'm Eugene Scott, political reporter for The Fix here at The Washington Post. I'm now joined by Andre Dua, a senior partner at McKinsey & Company, and he has been studying issues related to higher education for many years to come, for many years, should I say, and he's come to join us to share some of them with us. Uh, Welcome, Mr. Dua.
5: Eugene, delighted to be here. Thanks for having me.
2: So how would you describe the jobs outlook for those about to graduate this spring, as well as some more recent grads?
5: Well, I think that's a great place to start. I think as you'd expect, this is not the best job market to graduate into, perhaps even the worst job market to graduate into for quite some time and substantially worse than after the financial crisis in 2007 and 2008. So we see in general, that the job market is uh, very bad for young people and it's also bad for college graduates. So there is a real challenge right at this moment.
2: We just heard from Dean Leslie Fenwick uh, from Howard University about the unequal impact of this pandemic on different demographics. How is that playing out in regards to employment prospects?
5: Yeah, I think that's an excellent question. Um, As we look at this, there are a few things going on. I think firstly, as you uh, pointed out, the employment prospects and the unemployment rates for minority groups uh, are worse than for the population of college graduates overall. That's the first thing to be concerned about. The second thing, and perhaps of greater concern, is as we project out the rate at which the job market will recover, it does look like that certain groups are likely to take longer to recover. So as we, for example, look at different minority communities or women or low-income people, our projections are that some of these groups will take up to 12 to 24 months longer to recover to the pre-pandemic job levels that we had. And so I think, Eugene, as you pointed out, the thing that is quite concerning about that is we're seeing through the pandemic and the post-pandemic recovery a significant and unequal uh, impact and recovery
2: can you talk a bit about the outlook for those without a college degree is it exponentially harder uh, to find a job if you don't have
5: education beyond high school right now you know eugene i'm glad you brought that up because as we look at the different populations obviously college graduates are graduating into a more difficult job uh, market but those without college degrees and those without four-year college degrees are particularly disadvantaged. And I think there is a real moment here to pay much more attention to their prospects and to think through how we're going to lift up um, all of our citizens and all of our young people who are struggling in this post-pandemic recovery. And one of the things I will say that is a really big issue for us to resolve is what I would call a massive information problem which is that if you currently find yourself in not a great job or find yourself without a job, there is a real lack of information about how to create for yourself a meaningful pathway to a better job. And I think that structurally is one of the big issues the American economy is going to have to tackle.
2: Have you seen community colleges adapt their models at all uh, to adjust to the changing job market?
5: Yeah, I think as um, we heard um, in some of the earlier discussions, community colleges have been very uh, fleet footed in adapting. And let me give you one example. Um, At CUNY, for example, the City University of New York, they've really adapted and created some applied sciences associates programs. And they've done so very quickly to respond to opportunities in the job market. So, for example, they've created programs that relate to pharmaceutical manufacturing technology to environmental technology and to cyber and digital security. And these are obviously areas where there's significant job demand. So there's a really good opportunity there. But I think outside of colleges, we've also got to help people think through how to find for themselves meaningful career paths. And let me give you an example of, I think a quite exciting initiative underway. So there's a group called the Rework America Alliance, which has been really started by the Markle Foundation, but together with about 30 companies. And one of the things they're doing is they're sort of saying, for those without four-year credentials, how do we get people into really good job pathways? And let me give you an example of what I mean. Right now, for example, if you, let me take an example, if you're a customer service rep and you lost your job and you're now trying to re-enter the job market it's not obvious what job pathway you should consider that puts you on a longer term, more stable footing. So what the Rework America Alliance is doing is they're really using data to analyze the pathways that people take throughout their career. So let me pick up on this customer service example. If you're a customer service rep, you can become a computer user support specialist, which has a substantially higher median income. And what we see from the data is that once you're a computer user support specialist, there are opportunities later to become a computer systems analyst, which pay even more money. And so I think one of our challenges is to get this kind of information in the hands of people so that we are creating structured, well thought through, better career pathways for people. And that's what we're gonna have to do, but we're gonna have to do it at substantial scale.
2: You talked a bit about job loss. I'm kind of wondering what types of jobs in particular are at most risk or or, or at risk most due to the rapid changes in skill sets
5: needed. Yeah, well, that's a great question. And I think Leslie was talking about this as well, which is in many ways we're seeing the acceleration of trends already in place. And the big trends that we've really been keeping an eye on are the increase in automation and the deployment of digital technologies. And these are really proceeding a pace, and they were going quickly before the pandemic, but the pandemic has accelerated them. For example, in our research, we found that two-thirds of companies are accelerating their automation efforts. And as you will have seen yourself, e-commerce has really risen, and the use of digitization technologies. So where has that had an impact? Well, where we see that having an impact and likely to have an impact is in a couple of areas which are a pretty significant concern because they employ large groups of people, office support, for example, and customer service and support. So as we look ahead, we see these being job categories, which are particularly affected. Now on the other side of the ledger, there are areas where there is substantial job growth, for example, in the area of health aids and technicians or health professionals or STEM professionals. And so our challenge is going to be to support people in these job transitions.
2: I want to talk a bit about the coronavirus pandemic and its impact on the uh, workforce right now. And have you seen the pandemic shape the future of work differently?
5: Yeah, that's certainly the case. Um, I think the few areas in which we really think it's going to shape the future of work differently are as follows. I think firstly, as you would expect, there really has been a shift to remote work. Um, And I think while many people think it's going to snap back, I think there are opposing views, which really say, and and our research shows this, that actually in America, it's possible that in the future, 20 to 25 percent of people will be able to work remotely three or more days a week. And so that's going to have all sorts of impact on the job market. It's going to make the job market more geographically dispersed. And it's also going to mean, and we see this already, some movement out of the big cities into smaller cities. So for example, you see rents declining in places like New York and San Francisco and rents increasing in places like Sacramento as people uh, spread out more. So I think the remote work change is one big change. The second is really the rise of e-commerce and everything that's implied by that. So obviously there's a need for fewer retail workers, but on the positive side, there's a need for more delivery workers. So I think that's a, a second change. Um, And I think the third change is the deployment of all sorts of digital collaboration tools. So I think one of the things to think about here is also how is this going to impact people differently? Because the jobs that will remain remote are those typically held by higher income, better educated workers. And so this is another way in which the pandemic is exacerbating differences in the labor market. We've seen uh, in the past year the digital divide exacerbating
2: inequality in the workforce, uh, with the ability to work remotely, as you mentioned, often being a prerequisite for employment. Uh, How can companies make progress in closing
5: that digital divide? Well, that's an excellent question. I think, probably, um, Eugene, many uh, different parts of our community have a role to play in bridging the digital divide. As we've done some work across the country, What we see is that in many states, there are 15 to 20% of people who don't have access to the high-speed internet, which is required in today's modern economy. So the question firstly is, is the access available? In other words, does every American have passing by their home or where they work um, or where they live, the ability to connect to this infrastructure? Secondly, is it affordable? So it's one thing for it to be available, but when average prices might be $60 to $80 a month, what are the mechanisms we're going to use to support people? Um, And thirdly, once these technologies are available and are available affordably, do people understand how to use them? Do they have the appropriate digital skills which allow them to participate in the economy? So this issue is not related to any single um, state, actually. This issue is widespread across the country and probably does require a national solution if we aim to get ourselves to a situation where everyone can participate uh, in this economy as we come out of the pandemic.
2: What role do you think higher education can play in closing the skills gap in the workplace? Yeah,
5: well, if you'll permit me, let me step back for one moment and share a shred of optimism here about the situation. (laughs) If we look back to the early 1900s, very few people finished high school, about 10%. Um, By 1940, it was half the population. And then after World War II, as Leslie talked about with the GI Bill, we had maybe one in 20 people had a four-year degree. We now have about a third of people. And in each case, these big educational revolutions have been powering uh, the American economy and what has set it apart from other economies around the world and obviously other countries are now catching up. And so I think the opportunity now is to reimagine and take that next step, because higher education does pay off, not just for individuals, but Eugene, the one thing I would say we've lost lost a little sight of is that education, higher education is a public good, meaning individuals benefit, but all of society benefits when our citizens are better educated. So I would offer a few thoughts about what, how, how higher education might look different in the future. The first I would say is we've got to get all our institutions focused on those who don't have secondary credentials. And Leslie talked about this and others have talked about this extensively. But there are many people who are not participating. How do we get them to participate and how do we get them to succeed? So we need um, all Americans to be able to access these without high levels of debt. That's the first thing I would say. The second thing I would say is, we have a lot of people in our community who have real skills, but because they don't have credentials, they're not recognized. So how do we unlock, I would say, the trillions of dollars of human capital that's out there in this country by helping people get recognized for the real skills they have? The third thing I think you'll see, and I gave an example of what CUNY is doing, is the rapid adjustment of programs to prepare people for the jobs of the future. And I think we see this taking place around the country. There are many, many examples of this and community colleges are leading the charge and universities, uh, four year colleges are following. So I think that's another area. The other thing I would say is that the pandemic really has unlocked the role of digitization and technology. And so how can we use that to allow more Americans to participate? How can we create a greater sense of belonging, of community using technology? How do we actually use technology also to support um, student mental health? One of the things we haven't talked about is the pandemic has created uh, or exacerbated a really big student mental health crisis. So I think there are opportunities to leverage technology. And the other thing I would say we'll see in the next five or 10 years is the rise of the portfolio over the transcript. And let me say what I mean by that. Our students have more skills than a transcript can represent. And for example, Michigan State is doing something very interesting with co-curricular records, which show not just what courses you took and what grades you did, but what have you been involved in? What skills have you developed to create a more comprehensive picture of an individual and their talents? So I think that's another area. And I think the other thing I sort of mentioned, which applies to universities too, is I think we're at the beginning of seeing Um, a better understanding of job pathways, not just for post-secondary, for people without post-secondary qualifications, but even for people graduating from college. In other words, what major should I take to prepare myself for the jobs of the future? And how can data help me understand career pathways that will make me successful? And perhaps the last one I'd offer is I think we're at the beginning of an era where non-degree credentials will augment degree credentials and will proliferate. So certificates and other kinds of things, which in short bursts, give people uh, the sort of skills they need to participate in the modern economy. And I think this is a good thing to augment the, tr- the terrific role that higher educational institutions are playing.
2: Is a college diploma as valuable today uh, as it was maybe 20 or 30 years ago?
5: Well, um, Eugene, I think that's a question that's good to ask, and every parent and every person going to college should be asking that question. There is evidence, um, I, and I, it really has two parts, I would say. Firstly, um, college really pays off. If we look historically, if we look even at the last 20 or 30 years, um, it's clear that there's a very, very high return on investment for college. You know, people who co- complete at a community college, their lifetime earnings are 400000 average than somebody who hasn't uh, completed community college. If you've completed a four year degree, on average your lifetime earnings are a million dollars more than if you had uh, not completed any college. Having said that, the numbers I've given you are averages. And we do see some decline in the return on investment and particularly it depends on institutions and programs that students take. So one of the things which I think is really important, and it comes back to my theme about information, is how can we provide more information to students to evaluate what are good choices for them that reflect both their interests, the kind of life they wanna have, but also the reality of their financial situation that um, they find themselves in. Because what we want is to create really productive members of our community and citizens, but those who aren't overburdened financially so that the return is really there. So I think to to answer your question simply, yes, higher education is a great value for money, but it bears spending time on to find what's exactly right for each individual.
2: Well, thank you for joining us, Andre. That's all the time we have, so we're gonna have to leave things right there. Thank you so much for having me. I really
5: enjoyed the discussion, Eugene.
2: Likewise. And please tune in at 4 p.m. Eastern time when my colleague, Jonathan Capehart, will interview Ohio Governor Mike DeWine about the progress being made in that state regarding vaccine distribution, and tomorrow at 11:30 a.m. Eastern Time, my colleague Michelle Yee Lee will talk with Congressman Judy Chu and Mark Takano, combating anti-Asian racism. You can always head to the WashingtonPostLive.com to register and find out more information about upcoming programs. Thank you for joining us.
0: Thanks for listening.